Ramble. My dog Mango has been with me through some really crazy times in life. I mean, she's been with us for the past 10 years. If you guys don't know, Mango is my little French bulldog with half hair. Okay, she's fuzzy only half the time. And she is literally the glue of my family. I have quite literally named an entire podcast and a YouTube channel from my dog Mango. She is the reason that these channels exist. But three years ago, Mango was diagnosed with this autoimmune disease and she was always at risk of excessive bleeding. Her fur was falling out in clumps. It was it was a pretty stressful time in my life. I was constantly emotional about Mango being in pain and then I would be, get so stressed out every time I started going over the vet bills. Every time we took her to the vet, it was like thousands of dollars because her condition was so difficult to treat. And I am just so thankful that we had savings to cover it. I wish I had known about Spot Pet a few years back. It would have just eased so much of that stress. Our partner, Spot Pet Insurance, is here to share a message today on how they are a secret weapon against the unexpected. Because with Spot Pet Insurance, you can get up to 90% cash back on eligible vet bills. Our dogs are always there for us during our hardest times, and we need to be there for them too. Go to spotpet.com today and get a quote instantly. Visit spotpet.com. Paid ad from Spot Pet Insurance. Waiting periods, annual deductibles, coinsurance, benefit limits, and exclusions may apply. For all terms, visit spotpetins.com slash sample policy. Insurance plans are underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. Bada bing, bada boom. It's a mini-sode. Previously on Rotten Mango. Guys, <laughs> he practiced really hard for this one. Okay, welcome to this week's mini-sode. If you did not watch the podcast that I posted two days ago, you need to go watch that one first because that is part one. And now we are entering balls deep into part two. Just to give a fresh recap, it's going to be really quick. So we went through the, you know, Japanese bar hostess life. We went through Lucy Blackman's life. She disappeared. All of these other bar hostesses from around the world that were working in Japan started coming forward to Lucy's dad saying, like, oh my gosh, the same thing happened to me. You know, I was drugged in this seaside apartment. I don't remember what it is. The police get involved. They find out that there is a man living in this apartment building that is a registered sex offender. The manager of the apartment building had called the police saying, hey, there's a strange man trying to enter in one of the units that hasn't been used in a while. So the police arrive, they knock on the door. And of course, this man opens it up. He's sweating. He's acting really suspicious. And they're just like, hey, we got a nice little call. Can we search your place really quick? It's just a standard search. He's like, absolutely not. You searching my place is just like a violation of my rights. So they leave very, very freaked out. Later, he calls that same police department back and says, hey, can you come back to my place now? So they rush on over there and he tells them, hey, the reason that I um, was acting so suspicious and was avoiding these questions is because my dog died and I didn't want you to see my dog's dead corpse. And he opens the door and shows them a dead dog wrapped in a sheet. Now, this dead dog looks really stiff. I mean, it was dead, but it looked like that dog had been frozen for years. So the police, I mean, what can they do? Technically, he legally owned the rights to this apartment unit. They leave. The same day, the police get another report from the same manager of this apartment building that says, hey, uh, my boyfriend just reported seeing that same man that was trying to enter an apartment for a one that like legally owns the place. But like you get it, the one that I called the police on, right? Saw him like walking on the beach, like holding a shovel at night. So we just thought you guys should know. <laughs> so much is happening. Yeah. And the police so little are is like, being done. Mm, strange. Strange. Thanks. Thanks for the information, but <laughs> what a coinkydink. <laughs> Everything's just such a coinkydink here, okay? And then they start, tr- you know, the police, after they get these reports from this other d- district, they're like, okay, well, now, now we really got to investigate this guy. They find out that in October of 2000, yeah, so months have passed now. So this is a couple of months since she went missing. Uh-huh. He purchased a boat, a 20-feet Yamaha fishing boat for $50,000, delivered straight to the Blue Sea apartment, where he was doing weird stuff. Then, but he's being tracked right now. Yeah. Then he immediately goes to a supply store and bought a compass and a long piece of rope and an anchor. And he told the manager of this supply store that he's going to go deep into the ocean, to the deepest part of the ocean, and he needs a super long rope to anchor him down. Now, immediately they know that he's not an experienced sailor because no experienced sailor would ask for that long of a piece of rope. Like, it just sounds like you don't know what you're doing. You're going to get lost at sea. Now, he was a strange dude. The one thing that they remember about him vividly is that he just kept sweating a lot. He's just a massive sweater, just constantly wiping off sweat. 
Now, the police, while they're surveilling him, they think it's strange because sailing season has just ended. He had made no previous purchases in the same. He's not like a boater. Like, he's not like into boats. And this guy has money. If he's into boats, he would have bought a boat. This Mm -hmm. is his first boat. And now he wants to go deep into the ocean. He had concrete at his place a couple months ago. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? He's trying to dispose of a body. So they immediately arrest him for the abduction and assault of one of the other women, not Lucy, because they just want to get him to Mm -hmm. talk. So October 12th of 2000, he finally gets arrested. So who is this man? Joji Obara. Joji? (laughs) Yeah, Joji Obara. Same spelling? Yeah, same spelling. 48-year-old businessman and CEO. When he was arrested, he was just nonstop sweating. So the press, they get wind of this and they start tracking down his family because in Japan, crime is regarded as a family problem. It originates in the family. So that's why in a lot of um, these types of situations, you'll see the closest relatives apologize to the public and they'll Mm -hmm. like do these deep bows, even though they didn't commit the offense. And these people are like, you know, adults. So they're like, we need to find the family so that they can give like a press tour because, yes, press loves shit like this. They find out that he's not Japanese at all. Well, he is of Japanese citizenship. Now, this is where it gets even more political. He was an ethnic Korean born in Japan. So this is a Korean man. And he was not born Joji Abara. He actually had multiple names that he went through. But he was actually born Kim Sung Jong. And he was the son, the second son of four sons of a super rich family in Japan that was Korean. This is rare. So when um, when the Kims, when the his parents, when they moved to Japan, they weren't one of the Koreans that were forced. Now, I don't really know a lot of history about this. I know that there are, for like older generations, there's something going on between the Japanese and the Korean, okay? I don't know. I love everyone, okay? I don't understand. So apparently a lot of Koreans were taken to Japan to be retrained and stuff like that, right? So they were like held in Japan mm-hmm. and they were trying to take over Korea. So it doesn't seem like the Kims are from that era, but there was just a lot going on. I mean, Koreans weren't allowed to get loans from the bank, even if they were Japanese citizens because they were ethnic Koreans. Mm-hmm. They didn't have like the same business opportunities at the time. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this is still the same. I doubt it. So at the time, they weren't allowed business opportunities. They were never given executive positions, even if they worked really, really hard. Now, this family, the Kims, they ended up getting super rich. Now, their business model is very vague. They owned parking lots. And inside these parking lots, they had these Japanese arcade games that were the sort of legal loophole of gambling mm. where you could win, but you win cigarettes and then sneakily you trade them in for money. So if a police walks by, technically you're winning cigarettes, which means you're not gambling. Mm. But then like at the back of the parking lot, it mm-hmm. was weird, right? So that's, that's all they did. And they had a taxi company. Now, it's speculated and alleged that this family had ties with the Yakuza because how do these ethnic Koreans who weren't even allowed bank loans, you know, that came to Japan super poor, how do they even buy a plot of land to open up a parking lot? So it seems like maybe there was a lot of shady business growing, going, you know, mm. on, especially because um, Joji's dad ends up like mysteriously dying in Hong Kong. There's so much to this. So by the time that Joji is born, the family's already super rich, like so rich to the point where he would come home from school. Three private tutors are waiting for him. I'm talking like full parasite vibes. That's the vibe that I'm getting. Okay, he was the second oldest of four brothers, and he was seen as the heir of the family. Usually it's the first son. Okay, that's like Asian culture, right? Usually it's the first son. But the oldest was super political. He hated the Japanese. He said he hates Japanese imperialism. He would constantly tell everyone, all of his friends who were Japanese, how bad Japan is and how great Koreans are. So like, that's not really gonna, you're not gonna be a great businessman in Japan if you're just shit talking the people of Japan in Japan. And one day he stopped coming to school and just like stopped showing up. Later, he reached out to all of his, you know, little friends in school, asked them to borrow their yearbooks. They're like, what? give it to him and he returns them and all of his faces and names have been ripped out because he was telling everyone that the south korean cia was after him they were going to abduct him and torture him so i don't know who whose team are you on because now you're saying weird things okay back and forth a lot of back and forth okay so the family was like oh well this guy's a little unstable so our second son joji will be the heir to all of this i don't get it why did he do that he just seemed a little unhinged he wants to hide his identity. identity because he thinks the South Korean CIA is after him, which does make sense because he said that Koreans are victims and the Japanese are bad. But now he's like, the Koreans are coming for me. 
So okay. it's, it's just all very confusing. Okay. Yeah. So at that point, you know, Joji is like seen as the heir. And at six years old, he gets admitted into the Osaka University of Education, which is one of the best super elitist institutions in the country for six year olds. And then when he becomes a teenager, his dad just like unexplainably dies in Hong Kong. He goes to Hong Kong for business and just like dies. Now the family tells everyone in Japan, oh, it was a sudden stroke. But at the funeral, none of them are crying. Like, nobody seemed upset. And then later, neighbors saw the family have these um, handyman install bulletproof glass in their house as windows. So, like, I don't think he, I don't think he had a stroke. Like, if, if a family member dies from a stroke, I don't think the first thing on my to-do list is install bulletproof windows now. You know, mm-hmm. doesn't seem like a stroke. So then Joji moves to Tokyo completely alone because they have a house in Tokyo. So his family is living in their massive mansion in Osaka in like the best neighborhood of Osaka. And he decides to move to Tokyo by himself. He's like 16 years old. All he does is take a female housekeeper with him to like clean the, this mansion. It's like this massive modern mansion with all the rooms had sliding glass walls. He had this oval swimming pool. They were rich, rich. Okay. Wow. And the new kids in Tokyo, they thought that first of all, he, they had no idea he was Korean. I don't know if that would change anything, but they thought that he was Japanese. And they were like, he's so rich. What's going on? But he always had this like mystery about him. Like his parents were giving him like $500,000 a year as allowance. Oh my goodness. And he was just really isolated. Like he was literally the epitome of what you would imagine like these really rich kids. Like not super talkative, like not that obnoxious, like I'm so rich, I'm so rich, you know, but just kind of like keeps to himself very reserved. So they're like, huh, what is it? Like, would you call it sophistication? You know, it's hard to say. He was just isolated. He had no friends really at all. Interesting. So he becomes of age and inherits all of this money and business. And he starts, you know, become a real estate developer. And he was considered the generation of the lazy. His parents worked really hard. First generation immigrants, you know, from Korea to Japan, worked their asses off. And he he never had to work a day in his life. And he loved fancy things. He loved BMWs and Mercedes and Ferraris. And, you know, he had a Bentley and Aston Martin, a Porsche. He had all of these cars. He had so many cars. And the only love in his life was not women, was not his family, but his dog, Irene, a Shetland sheepdog. He loved her so much. He commissioned life-size statues of her to put all around the house. And then she died in 1994 and he preserved her body in the freezer for six years. He put in her favorite treats in the freezer, a bunch of roses, and he was waiting for cloning technology to get better so he could unfreeze her. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So at the height of his empire, he was worth around $60 million. And then he started doing a lot. He started losing a lot of money. You know, he loved his sushi, loved fine dining, you know, just super strange guy so once he's arrested they start doing massive searches on all of his properties and turns out not only is he that but he is a massive hoarder and he keeps master diaries from 1970s so they can kind of see these diary entries from 1970 to 2000 of his life yeah now the main diary that he really kept up with was a sex diary of all the sex partners that he's ever had And he wrote about it and he called it conquest play. Conquest. Like when you when you take over something and play, that's really scary. If you're like, hey, do you want to come over and Netflix and conquest play? I'm done. (laughs) I would cry. I would literally cry. So there was a list of many names, foreign and Japanese. And beside each one, he wrote his fake name that he used to contact them, his little aliases. He also wrote some of the women's um, names, phone numbers, addresses. Some of them were, you know, rather vague. And he detailed close to like 400 rapes. He's, he would write, I administered sleeping drugs or administered chloroform. She came to in the middle of it. She threw up. Like everyone had a description of how the conquest play went down. And the notes were sick. So some of them said like, I got a woman drunk, gave her a sleeping drug, but could not have intercourse because she was a virgin. Another one said, I did my usual, you know, pattern. I gave her a sleeping drug. It was good. But then I added chloroform, which was unnecessary. She ended up throwing up badly. Another one said, I put sleeping drugs in her chocolate ice cream. Then we made porn video. He even made these little graphs where he would detail the number of sexual relations in each year. The number of sexual relations categorized by nationalities. The nationalities of the women that he raped. So you'd be like, oh, I raped 
nine american women you know like stuff like that like pie charts yeah what yeah so definitively they said that okay well the number is anywhere between like 209 according to the journal upwards to 400 this is a full-on serial rapist so at the Zushi, the seaside apartment where most of these happened, there were commercial lights, video equipment, and hooks attached to the ceiling above the bed. They found tons of white powder, which later tested positive for flunetrizam, which is a hypnotic drug notoriously known as the date rape drug, okay? Multiple versions of like the date rape drug, other sedatives, 13 bottles of chloroform, 13 bottles there's porn videos all over the apartment. Some of these were like VHSs that he recorded. They had women's names, dates on them. They were in color and good quality and they started watching them. And it all started really creepy, like a vlog. So he would kind of record these women raising their glasses for a drink, like when they're just in his apartment thinking that he's just a nice client. And then it would cut to them abruptly on the bed, unconscious, naked and motionless. A lot of their times their legs were tied up and spread. There were these huge like uh, shooting lights, you know, like, like soft box lights next to them on the side of the bed to illuminate the, illuminate the scene. And then he would walk into the frame butt naked, most of the time with a mask on, and he would document the whole rape, which sometimes would last for hours at a time. He would vaginally rape them. He would sodomize these women. Sometimes he would use tools like the ones that doctors uses to um, like to do your pap smears. He would rape them with cucumbers, like just really sick stuff. Off camera, they found two TV monitors where one of them would play porn. The other one would be a live feed of him doing this to the woman and most of the time the women barely showed a reaction they barely made any noises they were knocked out but if they did move if they did say anything he would grab a piece of towel hold it under the victim's nose so that would immediately stop the struggling we can assume that they are being chloroformed now, there's wildly different numbers out there for these tapes, the amount of tapes. Some reports say there were 2,000 tapes. Some reports say there were 4,800 tapes. The police say that there were 170 tapes with at least 150 women. The courts say that there were 40. Joji says there was only nine. <sighs> it's ridiculous, this guy. So there were two types of victims. There was um, usually the blonde foreigners or Japanese women. And there was kind of a stark difference in the women is kind of how the police stated it. And I'm gonna, like trying to state it in a way that like makes sense, but also is not offensive because the whole way that everyone else stated it was wildly offensive. But essentially the women that were Japanese, they were a little bit more quote unquote plump. That's what they said. They're more plump. None of them had the conventional prettiness of the hostess girls. So they asked Joji and he said, I like an ugly girl. Selecting an ugly one is part of my play. I like play with an ugly girl. Okay, but, you know, what? these foreigners, they were considered, you know, conventionally attractive. And that's how they got into the hostess work. Uh -huh. And he said that foreigners are just as ugly, not in their appearance, but in their mind. They are drug addicted bitches. Now, in order to build a case, they actually had to bring in one of the women to ID herself in the video. Um, they didn't show her the video. They just took like a still, like a picture of the video. And she said it was really creepy because even looking at her, it just felt like she was looking at a doll, like a girl shaped doll, like motionless. But she knows it's her, but it's just really creepy. Mm -hmm. They also find evidence of Lucy being at the apartment. They find hundreds of strains of her hair that were tested for DNA. They find an undeveloped roll of film and they processed it and they found two pictures of her. They were both of her out by the sea. So it was her posing and it looked kind of awkward, you know, kind of like when someone's like pose and you're like smiling and looking good. But you're also like, eh, this is so weird. Why are you taking a picture of me? So that's kind of what she looked like. They also found more proof that he had something to do with this Lucy Blackman's um, disappearance. They found receipts for the month of July in 2000. The day after Lucy's disappearance, he bought 20 pounds of dry ice from a dealer near his Blue Sea apartment in a large packing box. The next day, he returned for more dry ice. Why do you need so much dry ice? Three days after Lucy goes missing, he goes to a like a camping store and he buys two to three tents, sheets for the ground, like a folding table, a seven-gallon cooler, flashlights, and a sleeping bag. Then he heads to the hardware store, buys a towel, three bags of cement, five cans of quick-setting agent for the cement, a stirrer, a plastic box, a bucket, a broom. Then he goes to another shop, buys a knife, hammer, chisels, wire, gloves, 
plastic bags, axe, handsaw, chainsaw. So his statement to the police was this. After they say, hey, um, you're arrested and we found all of this stuff when we searched your place. He said, I have in the past engaged in sexual activities with various hostesses and paid companions, all of whom were little more than glorified prostitutes. So he's pretty much saying, yeah, I they were prostitutes and like also really aggressive. OK, and um, he said that's what he said, the P word. OK, I say sex worker, but you get it. Um, I am presently being held for paying money to prostitutes for sex play, which I like to call conquest play. Like, why is he going on about this? I can't remember clearly because it was a few years ago, but I had sexual relations with some of the so-called victims. They were all employed as hostesses or paid companions. Most of them took cocaine or other drugs in front of my eyes. They were willing to take my money in return for sex play. Therefore, I do not believe that I'm guilty of rape or sexual assault. So they're like, but what about those videos? He's like, well, I paid them. They're sex workers, so they're not victims. What? So this news starts spreading, okay? Internationally. Australia even is hearing about this. And there was a woman by the name of Carita Ridgway who had grown up in Perth, Australia. Now, she, she ends up dead in Tokyo, And he has something to do with it. So we're going to this is five years before Lucy Blackman. So she had always been like this energetic, creative kid, you know, someone who loved inner English literature. She loved the great outdoors. But, you know, Karita's parents, they get separated and she became really depressed. So she gets sent to this psychiatric ward and her psychiatrist turns out to have a record of abusing his female patients. So it's literally punch after punch. Okay, so she starts, you know, he starts trying to groom her, taking her these lunches and then he gets fired. And it was just super intense. Once she's done with all of that, her friend is like, let's forget about all of this in Australia. You know, your parents divorced that was hard you got depressed the psychiatrist let's not even talk about that why don't we go to japan i heard that you can host us there and we can make a great living you're so energetic i mean people are gonna love you and we can just live in this beautiful city together so she moves to japan and she's good at it then one day she meets a client who drives this beautiful ferrari and he's like i want to take you guys out to dinner with me so they go to dinner literally for like every single day of every single week like he just seemed chill it was just like a tohan experience they weren't dating she wasn't trying to make him her sugar daddy nothing like that just straight up just a dawn now one day she goes out for the weekend and she doesn't come back now on monday she's at the tokyo hospital unconscious and dangerously ill so her friend calls her family in australia they rush out and the hospital says well this like japanese man brought her in a few hours you know like on monday in the early hours she has acute liver failure she fell into a coma And then her brain stopped functioning. So three days after the family gets there, she was pronounced brain dead and they switched off the life support. So the doctors believe, well, she's got to be a drug user. She's young. This is liver failure. That makes sense. The family's like, that doesn't make sense. What? She's not a drug user. Let's track down the guy that brought her here because he must have some answers. So they track him down. He speaks fluent English. He seemed calm. They meet up together in like a little hotel. And he goes on with this story. I met her at a club. She was a hostess. I took her to the seaside. And I think she ate a bad oyster because she started throwing up. She became so ill. Just, you know, really, really sick. The whole time he's sweating. He's just sweating nonstop. And they think that this is really uncomfortable. But what can they do? And he says, I loved your daughter. I wanted to spend more time with her. So I went to bed that night. She's throwing up a little bit. But the next morning, she was even more sick. So I called in a private doctor to the house, you know, because I'm rich. And he gave her some injections to help with the nausea. But then it got worse, you know, but I had some business to do. And then finally, on Monday, I brought her to the hospital and she went into a coma. And he says, well, these are things that I wanted to give to her. And he pulls out a gold necklace and a diamond ring. And he's like, yeah, I really liked her. So then he just leaves. So immediately they go to the police and they're like, you need to do something. They go to the Australian embassy. None of them care. They're like, this sounds reasonable. He sounds like a nice guy. I mean, what did you think he was going to do? Like start performing heart surgery on her immediately? Like this sounds like a reasonable citizen trying to help maybe. And that's it. That's all they were left with. So they go back to Australia, just completely heartbroken. They see this all over the news like five years later. And they call Tokyo and they call the police station. They're like, it must be that same guy. So the Tokyo police are like, okay, let's look into it. They find a receipt from the hospital for Karita Ridgeway in his apartment. She was also a victim in his video collection. Oh, my God. She was raped for several hours and he was seen shaking liquid onto a cloth and putting it under her nose multiple times in that video. So... 
we can assume that she had been heavily chloroformed and that's how she passed. Now, the Tokyo hospital, uh, um, it was an administrative mistake. They weren't supposed to keep her liver, but because there was like a record mix up, they kept part of her liver after she died. And so they were able to go in, reanalyze it, and it was preserved. And they found heavy traces of chloroform that had poisoned her liver. So now with this information, they go back to Joji because he's like tight lipped. He's like, I don't know what you guys are talking about. Like, this was all just, you know, sex workers and me. Right. This is paid business. And they tell him we know about Karita. He's like, oh, no, this is so this is disgusting. This allegation is disgusting. I had a romantic relationship with her and even took her to the hospital out of concern. So in February of 2001, the police start searching again. So this is (laughs) she went missing on July 1st, February 2001. They know that her DNA was in the apartment. They have this guy arrested. They start searching for her body and they start searching through everywhere. You would think that the most obvious place to search is, you guessed it, the Blue Sea apartment where he had that concrete. The police saw him. A witness saw him at the beach with a shovel. His Mercedes was parked out front with lumps, you know, in the car. That seems like the most obvious place, right? Well, February of 2001, they researched it and 250 yards from the apartment on the beach, there's this little cliff. Now, this is not like a beautiful cliff. This is not like one of those um, caves in Malibu. It's kind of like one of their shitty ones. Like Japan has amazing shores, but this one was like a where teenagers go to like smoke weed and stuff. And they find it's like it's more like a crevice in a rock, by the way. So they go and they start digging there, literally like 200 yards away from the apartment building. They start digging and they see a plastic bag. They tug on it and they see three lumpy objects. They open it up, and they see a human shoulder connected to an arm, two human feet that had trails, um, traces of nail polish. So they start digging further. They find a torso, naked and unwrapped. Then they dig some more. Two more trash bags containing the second arm, the two legs that were dismembered between the thighs and the lower legs, and then they hit like a concrete thing, like a block of concrete. They bring it in to be tested, and her head was encased in concrete. There was um, a couple of teeth left. They were examined. They matched the dental records, and she had been dismembered into, like, 20 different parts. Now, the main question that a lot of people had is, why did this take so long? This is 200 yards away from the place that the police were like, yeah, he was sweating. He was mixing concrete. We saw his Mm -hmm. dead dog. We saw lumps in his car. A witness saw him with a shovel on that same beach. 200 yards. This is where he had the boat delivered. Like, uh. yeah. Anyway, side note, they also brought in Jane Blackman and they just nonstop started asking her questions, which like I get it. The police need their answers. But like how traumatizing they sat down the mom and were like, hey, do you know if Lucy ate eel? Do you know if she ate tempura? Later finds out that it was the last contents in her stomach. But it was just really weird that the way they kept asking her, she said that she felt so nauseous and horrible because she knew something was weird about this, you know, this line of questioning. So the family, they want to go see where she had been buried. The press find out about this. And what do they do? They follow the family to the cave with their cameras. And it was an intense scene. So Tim is shouting at the press, throwing things at them, throwing whatever he can find at them. Sophie's shouting at them. Rupert, the young brother, who's like so young. He's this is the first time in Tokyo now. He's on his knees in the sand, just weeping like it was such a heartbreaking moment. So two weeks later, Lucy is flown home. Her funeral had 260 people at the church where her parents got married and there was a lot of drama. I mean, I think a lot of people say that sometimes things like this bring your family closer and that's what you hope, right? But things like this actually break up healthy families. So for an already broken family, it was just wreaking more havoc. Like you had a side with Tim's family and Jane's family and they didn't talk and it was just really intense. And because it was such a high press situation, a lot, a lot of Lucy's close friends were so pissed off because literally everyone from her school came just acting like they were so sad. Mm. And they couldn't even kick them out and make a scene. But all these girls were like, my Lucy. 
You do not have to scroll very far down your news feed to find a story about the restorative effects of collagen. Collagen will do amazing things for your skin. It's all the rage, but this is one of those things that is way more than just the hype. My mom has been screaming about collagen since as young as I can remember because it just really helps you retain your youthful skin. You just feel better. And now you guys can get the very best collagen on the market from Ancient Nutrition. This company has one goal, to transform the health of every individual on the planet with history's most powerful superfoods. So whether you guys just want to improve your body, sharpen your mind, or just feel like your best self, Ancient Nutrition makes supplements that get real results you can see and feel. All of Ancient Nutrition's products are made from the highest quality ingredients, and they are rigorously and repeatedly tested for purity, which is insane. Their best-selling multi-collagen protein powder, which is my favorite, includes five types of collagen. It is the first and only collagen on the market with clinically studied ingredients proven to help reduce joint discomfort, improve your fine lines and wrinkles after four weeks, transform your overall skin tone after eight weeks. It's unflavored and it dissolves in any liquid. I just put a scoop of it in my morning coffee or my smoothie. Right now, Ancient Nutrition is offering 20% off your first order when you go to ancientnutrition.com and enter promo code ROTTEN at checkout. That's ancientnutrition.com. Enter promo code ROTTEN for 20% off your first order. Ancientnutrition.com. Enter promo code ROTTEN at checkout. And what made it even worse is that Jane specifically asked nobody bring flowers. And all those girls brought the biggest bouquets that they could find, you know. And they just wanted to be there because it was, um, I don't want to say a big event, but it was a big thing happening. The British prime minister sent flowers. The Japanese ambassadors sent a ton of flowers and gifts. The Tokyo police sent a bunch of things. You know, there was press everywhere. They literally had the British like police. They had to have those crazy guards up front. And it was just insane. Wow. So the press, meanwhile, are having a field day. What do you mean? What do you mean? How are you going to find this in February? She went missing in July. This is like the most obvious spot. Anyone and their mom would search this place first. Are you kidding me? And they just said that, no, no, no. It's not because of our shitty work. It's because of our tenacity. It's because we kept searching. Even though we brought a guard dog out here, they couldn't sniff anything out. We kept coming back. We never gave up. What? What doesn't make sense? So seven months later, her remains were found and it was mummified and not skeletonized and it was impossible to find the cause of death. So one year and three days later, Joji Obara, July 4th of 2001, was going on trial for the rape and killing of Lucy Blackman. He was also charged with eight other counts of rape and the murder of Karita. So the upside in this is that the criminal conviction rate in Japan is 99%. It is 93% in the U.S., which is a huge up because it used to be 75%. So I don't know how I feel about these numbers, but that is just what it is. Just throwing those numbers out there. So during these court trials, you actually like Japan is kind of one of those places where it's a little bit different than the U.S. in the sense that the U.S. is is kind of like a sport. Like court is almost treated like a sport. You know, we have the era of court TV. We also had um, all these like defense attorneys just putting on a show it's like an absolute sport almost you watch it like you're watching a sporting event it's sick and twisted but it is like human nature almost but in japan it's really dry they read monotone it's just part of the process it's not necessarily like this crazy deciding moment okay mm-hmm. they're like no like you're it's just part of the process you even go from being called like um they call him obara-san which means mr like obara to when you're in the trial, they call him Obara Yogisha, which means criminal suspect Obara. So it's like really like no one thinks you're innocent anymore. Mm. That's just how it works. So the prosecutor theory is that he picked Lucy up, drove her to Zushi, got a picture on the beach that was estimated to be around 5.20 p.m. They go into the apartment. They start eating. They called the local restaurant, had fried chicken and tempura and eel that was delivered straight to their house. They eat. Lucy makes a few phone calls. She drinks the sleeping drugs in her wine or it was chloroform. And then we don't know. It doesn't seem like this was a torture murder situation because they couldn't find an ounce of blood. But it seems that maybe this was another Karita situation where she had died. And he was like, oh, that was too close of a call. Everyone, you know, this is not okay. I got to just dispose of her body. So then he, you know, calls Luis, pretends to be that this cult person. He calls a few more places, make sure that he has all of these things. He buys the chainsaw. He does all of this. He drives to his other apartment in Blue Sea and starts, you know. What was he? Oh. Dismembering oh, okay. her. Oh, so he bought the tents. 
to dismember it. And then, you know, the police came. So then he went and got his frozen dog and then was like, oh, no, the guys, this is why. This is why I'm being That's weird. insane because at that moment, he was probably dismembered. Yeah. Right? Like, it was literally a couple meters away from yeah. the cop. Now, what makes it even crazier is that it's suspected that she was not buried in the beach in July. Near probably, like, September, October, because it seems like he was debating between the boat option mm. and the burying option. Yes. Um, and so the she body was has probably been kept in frozen in a freezer like his dog. Oh, the dog that she he carried out was the dog that died? Yeah, that he kept frozen for six years. His beloved Irene. So then he probably did the same process with her and then buried her closer to like September or October time. So wow. he then, you know, after that, before October comes around, he sends a bunch of letters to the police signed by Lucy. Some of them by him sent money to pay off her debts. A police found a draft of one of these letters in the apartment, by the way, that he's like, oh, this one's not good. And then redid it, but didn't like get rid of that one. So it's obvious that he sent that. The chainsaw was never found, but the model that he bought matched the markings on Lucy's body. They found Lucy's notebook and a bunch of chloroform and date rape drugs on Joji's property. That makes sense. The cement that he bought was the same brand as the one that Lucy's head was encased in. I mean... All of this makes sense. And then a witness comes forward during the trial. A woman who was playing on the beach with her son near the Blue Sea Apartments. She said that there was a man sitting on the sand and it looks like Joji. She's pointing at Joji like, yeah, that's the man, right? And he was watching us really closely. I thought this was weird. Now, he didn't seem like a guy that just like loves kids. He seems like he's watching us and he's angry. And the son kept asking if he can go play in the cave. Now, the son starts running towards the cave before the mom can answer. And Joji looks super scared, looks at the son, looks at the mom, and he starts getting angry. And it looks like he's about to do something. So then the mom gets scared and is like, come back, son. And then they just like leave. They don't go into the cave. They leave because they're really freaked out about this. Now, the main thing that the prosecutors had to prove is that he could cut up a body into all of these different pieces without any blood in the apartment because they couldn't find any blood. They found her hair and DNA. They found her belongings, but they couldn't find blood. So they recreate it. The police recreate the exact scene with the exact tarps and the tents that he bought at these camping supplies, and they cut up a 150-pound pig, and there was no trace of blood left behind. Is that something that they need to prove after all, all these this, evidence? Yeah. <laughs> So then the defense, Joji had about 10 lawyers on retainer. He was during the course of this six year long trial. What? So the trial was six years long because they only had one session a month. So in other countries, you might have like five days a week and it might last like a month, you know, and that's a pretty long trial. Uh huh. But this one was um, one session a month for six years. So, yeah. so yeah, he went through like dozens of lawyers he was just running the show. He refused to listen to these lawyers. The rape charge, he said, well, the argument's obvious, you know? Yeah, the videos are weird. They're unusual. But that's just our kink. That's just my kink. You know, I like to pretend. You know, they consented to be chloroformed. But they didn't. Yeah, but he's like, <laughs> no, but they did because they're sex workers. So I don't really need their consent, you know? Like, that was his vibe. He was like, they're sex workers. So technically, I pay them. Like, that was his whole, like, he's one of those dudes, okay? So then the lawyers are arguing a hostess who goes into a man's apartment, that's automatically giving their consent to sex when they walk through that door. I'm so bad. <laughs> and then with Karita, they said, well, the sex was is consensual, you know? the videotape even though she's knocked unconscious and he continues to chloroform her during the sex but uh she wasn't murdered by him she was killed by the hospital it was a misdiagnosis by the hospital's part or maybe maybe they injected her with like a painkiller so they're saying okay those eight rapes they don't count because they're sex workers so they consented and then Karita, she died in the hospital is a consensual relationship it's probably the hospital's fault you can't blame me for it and then lucy she begged me to go to dinner with him. This is the story that he had for Lucy. He started it. He, he testified, okay? And he started it by saying that parents always want to see their daughter as a pure creature. And every sister wants to respect her sister. I, want, I don't want to ruin their image of her. But it was because of that I became embroiled in this terrible incident. And then he proceeded to call her self-destructive and tormented and addicted to drugs. And read out some of the darkest parts of her journal that were, you know, in the evidence file. So he has access to them. Like he would read out the parts that I read. Like I hate my, but he would say it as an, oh, well, she's just a druggie. Look at her. She hates herself. Wow. This guy is nasty. 
And he said that she died of consuming um, too many drugs. That's it. I wanted to take her to the hospital because she was sick, but she kept telling me I'm doing crystal meth and I don't want to get deported. I don't think. And okay, I'm saying it like this because none of this is true, you know, to my knowledge and to my belief. And he said, well, the next morning after that Saturday, we woke up and I left some food out for her. Now, me being a businessman, I had some business to attend to. So I had my assistant. Let's call him Mr. A. I had Mr. A arranged to pick up Lucy and drop her off in Tokyo on Sunday. But she was super hungover. So then Mr. A calls me and he says, oh, yeah, I'm driving Lucy now. Do you want to talk to her? I briefly talked to a foreign woman on the phone. Sounds like Lucy. So she's headed to Tokyo. I don't see her since then. So the last time I saw her was at my apartment, drugged out on her own free will, but alive, you know? So I move on with my life. I was really busy because I needed to bury my dead dog now. I decided after six years, I don't want to keep my dog in the freezer. I need to I need to open up some space for my frozen foods. So I took my dog out. I started buying all this stuff. Oh, the cement, that cement. Oh, God, that that was for an art piece. You know, like I want to do like some cement art. I'm artsy. And then her news started spreading everywhere that she's missing. So I call up my good assistant, Mr. A. I'm like, hey, Mr. A, what's going on? You dropped her off at home, didn't you? He says, well, Mr. Joji, I didn't drop him off at home. I didn't drop Lucy off at home. I had my assistant. So now his assistant's got an assistant, okay, who goes by Sato. He's a Chinese man. And uh, he picked up Lucy from me because he said that, you know, he has these rich Chinese men who want to hang out with a, a foreign woman, a white woman. So I dropped off Lucy with them. And she was excited because the, the Chinese men were going to buy her more drugs. So really just painting her to be this crazy druggie. Wow. So uh, they're like, OK, well, who's this Sato character? Who's this Chinese man that you are bringing up? Well, you can't interview him, prosecutor. He's an interesting guy, right? So in his 20s, he tried to disembowel himself in a ritual suicide attempt, but he survived. But he got hepatitis C. And um, after Lucy disappeared, he died. Yeah, he died. From guilt. <laughs> <laughs> so you have no one to back up this story. No, but you should believe me. Because my assistant has an assistant. And that means I'm a respectable man. Are there, is there actually an assistant? So later someone comes forward as the assistant. Turns out to be a member of the Yakuza. And there is no evidence that he is an assistant at all. And just like, just no credibility at all. And they were like, you can't, you can't just have... <laughs> none of this is making any sense and then they ask him well what about the chloroform oh the 13 bottles of chloroform no no no. someone gave me empty chloroform bottles and i was like that's so cool chloroform bottles so i just filled them with vodka i thought that was fun you know like a quirk like you guys want to see me take a shot of chloroform and then i would take a shot but it's (laughs) vodka we tested it. it's chloroform i don't know anything about that like just straight up lying talked about how much he loves donating to charity how much he donated to unicef but anonymously of course there's no record because anonymously also my iq is 200 so the whole time he's claiming that his iq is 200 i don't know what's happening here then they were like well we found your google results so we got your computers and you were googling how to buy chloroform and you search through multiple pages of it now then immediately after lucy goes missing you start looking up pages of how to dissolve a body, turn bones into ashes, how to melt bones. And this is his response. Get ready. You guys are true crime listeners. The same reason I did that is the same reason people watch those weird true crime shows. Not so I can commit a crime, but it reduces my stress levels. So I know you guys like listening to true crime, but have you ever tried Googling how to dissolve a body? I heard that is a stress reliever. I heard so. Try it tonight. The FBI is watching. And they said, well, what about the notes of those women? Those just journals of you literally saying, I date rape drugged her, you know, all of that. That's all fiction. It's in my head. It was supposed to be like a novel. So they're really entertaining him. Yeah. So then the parents come to testify. So you have Karita's parents come to testify and the black men's come to testify. Now, Tim gave a super moving speech. And this is really important, okay, because there's another plot twist immediately after this. So Tim gets up on the stand and he says that he feels guilt for all the times he could have seen her, but he was too busy with work. He feels guilt for all the times that he yelled at her when she was a little girl. He feels guilt for not giving her the money that she needed, for not being there when she needed it most. And this guilt isn't logical, but it's always going to be with him. And it makes him feel so terrible. And it deepens the terrible wound left by Lucy's death. But the worst guilt 
The worst guilt is the feeling of guilt I have when I don't think of her. The guilt I feel when I, when I'm happy for a moment about something. This guilt makes it impossible to ever really be free during my life from the devastating effect of her death. And part of me knows that I will never be free from this tragedy until I am able to be with her in my future life. It was deep. It was longer than this. And it was emotionally devastating for people that heard. I mean, people were wrecked by this. So it came as a shock when everyone learned that Tim Blackman received a million dollars from Joji during the trial. What? Lucy's dad accepted $1 million, well, close to $1 million. It was like 850000 US dollars at the time. Now with inflation, probably over a million dollars, okay? From Joji. Why? How? What? So here's how it goes. Joji was going around offering a bunch of people money, including Karita's parents, Jane and Tim. Now, Jane and Karita's parents, they were like, all right, loser. No, we're not. We're not entertaining this. Here's what you need to know about the Japanese procedure. It is not unusual for criminal cases where the, you know, the defendant offers money to families. It's like an exchange. Okay, how am I going to say this without making it sound really nasty? Because it's not nasty. If someone killed someone by drunk driving, right? Mm -hmm. That's vehicular manslaughter, right? Under the influence. I don't know what it would be, but you get it. So they start offering the money to the family of the victim. Mm -hmm. And so there's kind of like this unspoken rule that a certain number amounts to like a year being taken off. And in return, that family offers a kind word to the judge Mm -hmm. saying something as, you know, I forgive them, right? But this person is still accepting guilt, but Mm -hmm. not in Joji's situation. He refused to apologize. He said that this offer of money is not me righting a wrong. It's me just being a rich person feeling bad for these people. Like, I just genuinely knew these girls and I felt so bad for them. Wait, so the money was exposed? Yes, and it gets exposed with emails. and, And Tim signed a document pretty much saying like, yeah, I don't even think he's guilty. So Tim is hella shady, you're saying? No, okay, so I, at first, I was really upset about this, but okay, I'm going to continue. So then Joji's PI, they hired a bunch of other PIs to track down all of these rape victims, and they were offered $20,000 each, and most of these women, they refused. They were disgusted, but nonstop, they were getting hounded at their workplace, at home. These PIs were following them, tracking them down, forced them to sign these papers that say, I acknowledge that I, you know, accepted this compensation. I agree to seize this whole case like i want it it's officially settled i withdraw the prosecution and complaint in my case because i do not have the intention of seeking criminal punishment now the the prosecutors didn't care they were like yeah we don't really care there's literally video evidence so it's not just like word for word so they would sign these documents and tim signed one that was scrambled english it was obviously not written by tim but it was signed by tim pretty much saying that there's no concrete evidence putting joji at the crime scene and that the police didn't do a good enough job Now, there was absolute outrage, you know? I mean, it's complicated. So he accepted the money right before closing arguments. So it's not even like the the judges are deliberating because they had three judges, not a jury. Mm -hmm. So it's not even like that. It just, it was just complicated. I can see maybe where Tim was coming from because he later states, I thought this was him. It makes him look guilty. And I thought, you know, he is losing all this money. That's even bigger punishment. And why should this man who murdered my daughter have money? Does that make sense? It's kind of like Yeah, that. I mean, I, I get it. I think the timing was just off right before But I feel like, argument. yeah, but I feel like if if this was a public yeah. offer, like, you know, you're saying like, yeah. hey, I freaking killed your daughter. Regardless, here's a million dollar for whatever. Here, yeah. would you like to accept it? And as a victim's family, yes, I'll accept it. Because why not? Yeah, like you, yeah. Well, I'm going to take your money. So I think that's fine. But I feel like if someone kind of exposed that information and use it for different um, yeah. purpose. so And then everybody's like, oh, what's and happening? The emails were exposed and there was a lengthy negotiation of the price which rubbed mm. a lot of people the wrong way. So like in one perspective from the outside, I can see how it's really nasty, but I'm trying to think as unbiased as possible. If that were me, mm-hmm. maybe I would want my parents to just take it. You know, why not negotiate for more? Because you're going through all of this. Yeah. You're not doing well financially. You spent so much time in Tokyo just yeah. running through your money. I don't, th- I don't know if like, I, that yeah, I guess so, it's all, all depends yeah. on how it was phrased when but it there wasn't was phrased well right when so. the, when this information was uh, shared yeah. 
was it phrased as oh he's secretly taking money yes yeah, so her. all the headlines said blood money dad <laughs> Oh my god. So it was not phrased well. Right. You know, that with the talks of he hadn't seen his daughter for, you know, a really long time since the divorce. He cheated on his wife, walked out on his family, has a new family, and then he took a million dollars and it was just a really dark, grim picture. And then all of those little suspicions during the earlier trials of him, like, you know, wanting to do these TV interviews, of him exploring the, you know, hostess bars for research. Mm-hmm. It just got really bad. And then a month later, he spent the first $100,000 buying his second boat. Oh, my God. Now, he did claim that it was on behalf of a charter company that he ran, but nobody cared. What does the mom and other... The mom hated this. See, and and here's another thing, right? He took the money. Yeah. While all the other girls and the mom and all of them, they didn't take the money. Yeah. That shows a lot. I'm sure all of them needed the money. So later on, um, Karita's parents will accept a million dollars after right. the trial. And they will write a letter saying that they think that he can be rehabilitated one day. But Jane never took the money. So it's kind of, it's like one of those situations yeah, I, I mean, don't even know. I mean, out of everyone, this yeah. guy is the first one that jumps out and takes a million dollars. It just, yeah, it, it's, it's, I mean, you know, he, you could say he's a victim, but also at the same time i can see why people get so rage yeah i can see why people are enraged but i can also see the other perspective of it you know compared to jane he did spend a lot more time in tokyo maybe that's why maybe he did lose a lot of money he was going through a lot of his savings but it's just it's too complex really to have a like a strong feeling on if you're not really involved it's just one of those It's like the same feeling of how do you expect a victim's family to react? There is not one code, but we all have this like underlying, oh no, but they should look this way. No, they should be acting this way, right? Mm -hmm. So the trial lasted six years and a month. April of 2007, the verdict comes in. This is seven years since Lucy arrived in Japan. This is 15 years since Karita's life support had been switched off. This is a while. And he was acquitted (gasps) of raping and killing Lucy Blackman. But he was charged of eight counts of rape and the one, um, the rape and killing of Karita. So he was given a life sentence with the possibility of parole in 20 years. That's crazy. So um, the only silver lining is, you know, some people started blaming Tim and the blood money because that happened literally like a month before closing arguments. But Technically, if he was charged even with everything that happened with Lucy Blackman, he would still get the same sentence. Really? 20 years? They do life in prison with the possibility of parole in 20 years or the death sentence. But Uh like that was like off the table or something. I don't think they. Yeah. Okay. That's strange. When did the death sentence stop in Japan? I'm going to look that up. Okay. Anyways, the police, they were dragged because the first report they had of him of this whole, you know, date rape process was in 1997. This is three years before Lucy even came to Japan. And then five years before that, they ignored Karita's parents' pleas of like, no, you got to look into this guy. If they had just searched his apartment, they found those tapes. You would have stopped a serial rapist and a murderer. So Mm -hmm. Lucy was only 13, to put it in perspective, when Karita died. Mm -hmm. She was in England, not in Japan. You know, this could have saved a lot of people. He spent 30 years as a serial rapist, drugging his victims. His real count of victims is unknown, but the police estimate anywhere between at least 150 to 400 women. So then Joji in prison, you think he's just going to go down like that? No, he commissions a book to be written about him. Um, Yeah, he just literally paid someone to write a book about him. And it was written in the third person. He talked about how he's innocent, how he has such a high IQ, how he gives so much money to charity, blah, 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 blah. He sues a bunch of reporters and magazines. He sued Richard, the author of this book, the amazing author, for libel, for defamation. He's still alive. Yeah, and then well, and he then come after he the sued Time Magazine and he won because Time Magazine reported that he had ties to the Yakuza, which I don't think that they said alleged. I think they said like affirmative, like, oh, yeah, he has connections with the Yakuza, which he technically like you can't really say that. So he won for defamation. Now, his brother, he was tracked down their family, like his family was dead silent. They never gave interviews. They never did like that traditional apology. Right. Uh None of that. The brother was tracked down by the author of the book, Richard. And he said, if these girls come to a foreign country and follow a guy home who isn't good looking to his apartment, what do you really think about that? Why would she do that? It's absurd. You must have bigger issues to pick up on this. 
than this minor thing. What about global warming? And he says, how many times? Yeah. And he backed it up with how many times have you seen a beautiful woman in Thailand with some ugly guy? It's a waste of time. Like saying that this case is a waste of time. This serial rapist and murderer is a waste of time because global warming. Because beautiful woman in Thailand. What? That doesn't even make sense. What? So maybe it like runs in the family. That's crazy. Joji appeals this sentence and he does a bizarre experiment. He had his attorneys purchase the same exact freezer that he had in his house. And then he paid and commissioned someone $10,000 to construct a mannequin that looked exactly like Lucy and try to like carry her into the freezer and like try to prove that he couldn't have stored her in the freezer because she couldn't have fit. That really didn't do anything. So in 2010, the appeal was rejected. So on average in Japan, it said that um, 30 people serve 30 years before getting parole. Doesn't really mean life, but we don't really know. So he's alive. He's he's alive. Well. He's in jail. Not sick, from what I can tell. Suing everyone. Yes, I don't know if he's going to sue us, but like I hope he doesn't. <laughs> yeah, he probably won't. <laughs> so the, then it started this huge conversation, okay? Because there was a lot of racism involved, and. The Western media was just demonizing Japanese men, just saying that these Asian men are predators for blonde foreign women. We need to protect our blonde women, you know, and then that caused a lot of tension in Asia because there are so many countries in Asia where they're like, wait, we've had a problem with Western men coming and raping our women in times of war and in not times of war, in times of vacation. Even today, yeah. Even today. So there was just so much. And I think it really shouldn't even be about that. Why is that a thing? One man does something to a woman. A woman does something to a man. It's just a situation of crime. You don't have to make it about the whole population of Japanese men or the whole Western foreign men population. It just doesn't make sense. So Louise, she... um the friend during all of this she felt like it was her fault she did not sleep she went back to england she cried all the time she fell victim to drugs and drinking she didn't care about anything she just felt like everyone blamed her and the guilt was just crushing she didn't know what to do she was the last one to see her alive sophie the younger sister i mean she was so angry and I, I feel like she had such a, such a raw, like when she tells the author about it, it's so raw. Like she's so angry because half of her friends, they're just pitying her when she gets back. The other half of her friends, they're avoiding her because they don't know what to say. What do you say to someone whose sister has been dismembered and like buried on a beach in Tokyo? What do you say? So she's like angry. She gets prescribed a series of antidepressants. And one day she decides to take every tablet she could find. And she was hospitalized for her suicide attempt. And her parents rushed to the hospital. And that's when they learned that she had been cutting herself. She had been self-harming. And nine months into her hospital stay, she had another suicide attempt. And eventually she was released. She finished a degree in clinical physiology. And then Rupert Blackman, the um, younger brother, he was depressed. He dropped out after his first semester at university, came home, lived at home, and just spent most of his time, like, crying in his room. Jane Blackman remarried. Tim started a fund for Lucy Blackman to help other families of victims who go missing in foreign countries. And it just seems like this is one of those situations that the family is really broken. And I think they're really, I think it's so brave that they're um, open about it. But Sophie says she doesn't talk to her mom. She's not really close with her. Like there's just like you would think that it would bring people together, but it doesn't at all. You just start blaming each other and blaming everyone else. And yeah, it's just really shitty. And that's why yeah. like some of these times, like mm-hmm. when you hear these criminals talk, even the brother for, of oh. um, <sighs> Joji, it's like, what are you talking about? Think. You think this is what happened, but think about not just the victim Mm -hmm. and the after effect. And I don't think, you know, like you're saying sometimes what happened to the victim, they never get better. And then we're also talking about anywhere between 150 to 400 women all across the world, really foreigners, Japanese women who, I mean, they're victims. They are impacted every single day and all of their families are impacted. So it's really not even just about Lucy and Karita. It's like all of these people and the brothers like global warming. Okay, listen, I'm all for global warming, but like now's not the time. Yeah. 
It's crazy. I can't believe that he was just operating under the shadows of everything for 30 years. I do think that money had a huge element in this. Mm. I think these women were already very terrified. Their hostesses, the police. I mean, it's already been proven that the police don't really care about these hostesses, literally. And this is a man with a lot of wealth. I. Yeah. Wow. How can you say something? So that is the story of Lucy Blackman. And what? Please go read the book. It's honestly such a good book. I don't do it justice. Nobody does it justice. This book is amazing. I was feeling so many emotions in it, and it just gets you so riled up. So People Who Eat Darkness by Richard Lloyd Perry. And I hope you guys enjoyed this week's podcast, and I'll see you guys tomorrow. Bye. Tomorrow? Oh, shit. No, I don't know when I post. Okay, bye. <laughs>